Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. We are going to look together at the Word of God this morning, and we're going to return to a portion of Scripture that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. I think it's important. I think important. I think it will be helpful to read uh, consecutively through, even though our, our primary focus is going to be on verses 5 through 14 of, of Matthew, or 15 of Matthew 10. I want to read beginning in verse 35 of chapter 9, because this is a whole, and, and there's a logic to it. There's a flow. I mean, it's actually a flow. It's a consecutive series of events, so... Would you stand with me as we turn to the Word of God? Matthew 9, 35 through 10, 15. Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited. Remember, the, I, I prefer harassed and helpless. First word is harassed. The second word means fallen down. Harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. The first, Simon. Simon was not the first called. We know that his brother was following before he was. But Simon is first because on this rock, Jesus would build his church. The first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out after instructing them. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worthy of his support. In whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it would be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Heavenly Father, your word is precious and we thank you for it. The, the word is a reflection and it lives by the spirit of the word of God incarnate, Jesus, the son of God. I pray, Father, this morning that your word will not be human words, but that it, by the Spirit it will have power, that it will bring conviction, 
that the Spirit will fill it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This is a series of events that begins with Jesus going through all the cities and villages and ends with his disciples being sent into all the cities and villages throughout Judea. As Jesus has been doing, so his disciples will soon be doing. And their following of him, their reflection of him is, is not merely in the peripatetic journey that they travel about and walk, but it's in the and the power they have in the message they carry. So they are, they are doing what disciples are supposed to do. They're following their master. They're being led by, by the one who is their teacher. And, and this is the first of the journeys that these disciples go on. It's the, the first taste of the, of the glory of the calling they've received that is now, it's now their calling and their power because of Jesus, he gives them this power. And it's the, a premonition of things that are to come because their lives in days to come are going to be this work on into forever until death. And so it's kind of like a baptism. It's a, an inauguration, an initiation into the things of God. A wonderful, wonderful time in their lives. Um, as they return, they're rejoicing, saying even the demons listen to us, we know. And they're just filled with joy. But this is the beginning, it's not the end, and so it would be wrong to talk about the end at the beginning. We see that this is precipitated by Jesus seeing the people as he goes through these, the towns and cities of Judea and feeling compassion for them. Because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now these are not, as we would look at them, harassed and helpless people. Nothing about them. There are some that are ill in their midst. And we might call those harassed and helpless. But very few of these people that Jesus is going to are going to want to be called harassed and helpless. They're not wanting pity. They're, they're, wanting, they're wanting a few things. They, they want to hear a message. They're... They're entranced by the, the messenger and his power. Some of them are wanting healing from certain diseases, but certainly that's the minority. There's tens of thousands that are at points following him in, in these crowds. And, and not all of them are ill. Not all of them come to him for healing. So we know that it's a spectacle of power and glory that, that brings them to follow him. But it's not that they're sitting there saying, oh, I am harassed. Oh, I'm helpless, no more so than anyone else in the world. I know very few people in this world, no matter what their income level is, no matter where they live, that say, I'm a harassed and helpless sheep. <laughs> have, have any of you ever said that? <laughs> is there a person here this morning who said, what a harassed and helpless sheep I am? It's not the way we think of ourselves, is it? It doesn't matter how far down we are. We don't look at ourselves and say, I'm harassed, I'm helpless. And it's certainly not the way the Jews of, of this century looked at themselves. They were in a nation that was accorded great privileges by Rome. A nation that had no uncertainty about their being chosen by God. They're not harassed. They're not helpless. And yet Jesus looks at them and says, you're harassed and you're helpless. How can they be so full of themselves? And, and yet Jesus says to them, you are harassed and helpless. Or says of them, harassed, helpless. Pitying them. How is that? Well, he says... 
the harvest is plentiful immediately after noticing that they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Harvest is plentiful, workers are few, therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest, send out workers into his harvest. He summons his twelve and he gives them authority. Immediately he puts into practice what he says is the need. He says they need, they need a shepherd. They need someone, the Lord of the harvest, to send out workers into his harvest. Now he's mixed his metaphors there, hasn't he? Right, AJ? Because he's turned from sheep without a shepherd to a harvest that needs harvesters. But it's the same pastoral sort of country-ish farm metaphor. You know, the, the one is sheep need a shepherd. The other is the harvest needs harvesting. And it, it gives some kind of a, an understanding of the authority that's needed there. They are there, but they have not yet found their purpose. They have not yet been brought into a harvest. They are wandering sheep. They are unharvested chocks of wheat out in the, in the fields. They're, they're, they're there, but they're not there. And that may be something that you understand a little more if you think about your life. I'm there, but I'm not there. I, I understand that there's something more, but I don't have something more. I want something, but I don't have it. I, I realize there's got to be more to this life, but I don't see it. I was watching a young guy pull out of McDonald's this morning. This is, maybe this will work, maybe it won't. <laughs> the story. I was watching him come out of McDonald's. And uh, as he pulled out, young guy in his parents' car, obviously, driving back down to River Road, I thought, you know, he's probably got himself a breakfast and he's going back home or he's going to where he lives or whatever, and he's going to eat his breakfast. And I thought, wouldn't it be nice on a Saturday, on a Sunday morning? Well, I don't mean this, but. You know, he's thinking, man, I got a free day. I'm going to go to McDonald's. I'm going to get myself a breakfast. And I thought to myself, you know, I often drive by that McDonald's at the corner of Dutch and River Road, or 24, old 24, and I think I'd like to go in there. And I say to myself, no, David, <laughs> you don't need more food, right? And this young guy, he's come pulling out, and he's got the food he wants. And I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, you know, he got the food but the reality is, if he keeps on going to McDonald's, he's not going to be a happy guy. Because he's not going to be this young, fit guy driving his parents' fancy car. He's going to be a guy who eats at McDonald's, right? Am I, am I, forgive me, I, you understand what I'm saying. I'm not, I love McDonald's, but I, I, I try not to be the guy who eats at McDonald's, who lives to eat at McDonald's. And so I was thinking, you know, and I thought, this is the reality of the world. Every pleasure you have, you want to take it and you want to go forward and forward and forward with it. But at some point, that pleasure turns into pain. Because if you eat at McDonald's all your life, you're going to die, right? Did you hear about the guy who, this last week, who ate licorice, a bag of licorice every day for a month and had a heart attack? And they said there's this chemical in licorice. It's a warning to me. I, don't, you know, I love licorice, but boy, I'm going to be careful Asher, when you give me licorice from here on out, I'm going to understand that there's some malevolent purpose at work there. All right? <laughs> and, and it's true of everything. There's, there's an end to every pleasure. There's an end to every form of goodness, except the goodness that Christians sacrifice and live their lives to obtain. And that goodness never ends. And I thought to myself, watching that guy, I mean, my mind went all over the universe as I was watching him pull out of McDonald's. But I thought, you know, the fun of McDonald's ends. The joy of the Christian never stops. It just grows and grows and grows. And so Jesus is sending these 
his disciples out. He's doing what he said needs done. He's sending workers into the harvest to a people who don't think they need an authority because they have plenty of authorities in their life. They have the Romans. They have the Pharisees. They have the scribes, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin. They have authority after authority over them. They don't want more authority. And yet Jesus says, they are sheep without a shepherd. They don't have authority. They're wandering, harassed, and helpless. And Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to send you out with authority. And that authority is going to be powerful. And you see, they're going out into a world that says, we really don't want more authority. Keep us from having more authorities over us. What we want is pleasure. We want something that means something. We don't need more authorities. And yet Jesus sends out authority into a world that hates and is sick of authority. It's the same as our day. The world is, uh, that we live in, the, the, the country that we are a part of, is sick to death of authority. People are sick of authority. They can't stand authority. And Jesus has sympathy for people like these, like our day, who are sick of authority. He actually says to his disciples, you know, the the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And your own people want to be the chief people. And they want to keep you down. And the only way they can sit at the top of the Instagram follower list is by having everyone else lower than them. You know? And so they see the whole world as a stratified world. Well, I'm above you. And I'm above you. And, and one day I'm climbing and I'll be above you. You know? And Jesus is sending out authorities that are vastly different from the authorities that they have over them. And the question is, what is the result going to be? What's going to happen? How is it going to work? He summons his 12 disciples and gives them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And then he, uh, Matthew names the 12 that he sends out, the chosen ones. And then verse 5, these 12... Jesus sent out after instructing them. And he gives them a series of instructions. Do not go in the way of the Gentiles. Do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. He reminds them you've been given this authority. You've been called freely. You've been, you weren't righteous in yourself. You weren't the good guys of, of Judea or Galilee, you weren't the smart guys of Galilee, you, you weren't the good-looking guys of Galilee, you've just been given this by God, you've been chosen, and it's not on the basis of who you are, it's free. And so now go out and freely give it. And it's an immense authority that they're given, and it, it, it consists of really only one type of authority, and I want to talk about that authority a little bit, but it may appear in two forms. It's, it's a singular authority, but it appears with two faces, in a sense. And that authority is the authority of God. Jesus summons his 12 and gives them authority. God gives authority to those who follow him. That authority with the disciples, the first face that it wears is authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. So when Jesus sends the 12, he says, go to the lost sheep of the, of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, 
Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you receive, freely give. And that authority of God is over, it's over demons. It's over the power of Satan. It's, a, it's an authority that doesn't d- distinguish between what is demonic and what is illness. It says, go out and do this. Cast out demons, cleanse lepers, raise the dead, heal the sick. Who is the king of death in Scripture? Who is, whose tool is death? It's Satan. So in every one of these instances, the, the final bottom line authority they're confronting is that of Satan. By raising the dead, they are confronting Satan. By casting out demons, they're confronting Satan. Job was ill because of Satan. In every one of these ways, he's saying, look, I'm going to send you out there with an authority that's an authority in human lives because you are going to have power against the things that afflict them. You're going to receive a power that can go out there and it can defeat Satan. Satan is going to be subject to you. And they come back rejoicing, we're told, (laughs) saying, even the demons listen to us. And And Jesus responds, I saw Satan falling from heaven. He praises God after the report of the disciples comes back that the demons, Jesus prays to the Father and says, I saw Satan falling from heaven, praise God. So they have a power that's against Satan. That's one face. It's this kind of miraculous face. <clears throat> the other face of it is he, he tells them in the same breath that he tells them to heal the, the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons freely you receive, freely give up. Um, He had said that, he says that, but he began it by saying, and as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Then heal the sick, raise the dead. So in the same breath, he's saying that you preach and you you confront Satan. I hope you understand that this is the same authority. That in confronting Satan in physical manifestations of Satan's power, They're just doing what they've already done by preaching against the spiritual manifestations of satanic power. So they're supposed to declare the kingdom of heaven. You are to go and say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now this is done constantly throughout the New Testament. It was done by John the Baptist. It was done by Jesus. The beginning of his ministry was his declaration. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is constantly being said that the disciples went and preached the kingdom of heaven and and we know that every time that that was preached there was a call to those who received the message what was the call the the kingdom of heaven is at hand anyone know okay it usually precedes the statement the kingdom of heaven is at hand blank the kingdom of heaven repent right So they're going out and they're declaring the kingdom of heaven just the way that John the Baptist did it. John the Baptist declared it. Now in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. We read this in Matthew 3 saying repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right. Matthew 4 17. After hearing that John the Baptist had been thrown into prison by Herod from that time Jesus began to preach and this is his preaching everywhere he went. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So they're going out and they're preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And of course they're saying repent, repent. They're calling on the people to repent and it has power. 
And this power continues, and it goes on and on and on. It goes on from this point on through the rest of their ministry with Jesus, on through the day of Pentecost, on through the early days of the church, when the church, led by these men, grows and grows and grows, on through the days of persecution, on and on until they die, and they die carrying this message, and they die, many of them, because they carry this message. This is their message, this is their power, this is their authority, and they go out. Now, I said it appears in, in, under two faces, this, this authority that they're granted. The first is the, the obvious, miraculous works against Satan. The second is the spiritual calling of the preaching. Both are going on, both are on the same form of authority, Satan being confronted, but the one is, is at least with the uninitiated and the outsider more powerful than the other. So when the man is lowered through the roof and the Pharisees are angry at Jesus for declaring to him as he comes down, the paralytic comes down through the roof and Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven you. The Pharisees are saying, who is this man that he has the right to forgive sins? Who does he think he is? And declaring, and Jesus says, well, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or get up, take your mat, and walk? Obviously, the answer is, well, it's real easy to say your sins are forgiven, all right? But, yeah, get up, pick up your mat, and walk? Now, that would be something. So, immediately after asking that question, Jesus turns to the, the paralytic, and he says, get up, pick up your mat, and walk, and the man walks. Which is proof that Jesus has the power to forgive sins, has that greater power. We're called to carry the same message. We're given the same power. And yet I know that many of you wish you could go out into the world and cast out demons left and right. That you could go to the COVID ward and cause everyone to stand up and then you'd have a message that people would listen to, you think. And Jesus does give this power but this power doesn't change the world the way the preaching of repentance does. Uh, the people who received the miracles were often not even willing to come back and thank him. All right? And I want to be clear with you. you. You think that if we had this power right now, if we could say, you know, get up and walk, that people would suddenly turn to Jesus. That's what this world needs, we think. But let me remind you that in Scripture, the, the days when God gives men and women the power to, to do these miraculous deeds are very, very few indeed. It seems in Scripture that the times when God gives this kind of power are unique times. Times of a new thing. Times of uh, darkness often. Times when he is seeking in a sort of manner that would be, in a sense, in your face or defiant through his messengers to declare that Satan doesn't have power. And so you see miracles when people are under the thumb of, of an oppressive ruler, right? When his people are suffering. Daniel in the lion's den, the lion's mouth is shut. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego thrown into the fiery furnace and God saying, oh, Nebuchadnezzar, who do you think you are? 
We see it with the children of Israel when God is coming to set them free. He begins it with a miracle at the burning bush with Moses and continues the miracles because God is saying, I'm God. But those miracles did not change the minds of the Egyptians, nor did they change the minds of the Jews. They grumbled afterwards, and the Egyptians came with their army, right? There are miracles at the beginning of the church, but it's dark times. And in reality, the best of times in the Bible are the times when there are very few miracles. I don't remember a, a single miracle. I thought, and I, maybe you'll correct me, but at least there were very few during the life of Abraham. Other than Sarah having a child, right? That's a great miracle. But other than that, it wasn't a miraculous time. David's kingdom, David's reign, Solomon's reign, the high point of the life of Israel spiritually, economically, in every way, geopolitically, not a time of miracles. There weren't miracles then. When God is being worshipped and the people are in the presence of God, reading his word, paying attention to him, God does not send miracles, all right? Now, we're entering a dark day. It is a dark day. It's a dark time, and maybe God will do more miracles now just to establish who are his and to encourage those who are. But we need to recognize that this form of power, this one face of the power isn't always there. Even as the disciples go on in life, it seems the miracles slow down as they move on. And eventually, Peter who walked out of prison by the power of an angel early in his ministry after Jesus ascended into heaven. Later in his life, he's led by the hand into the, the execution chamber. And he doesn't walk out. That's really the way it is. God does not give miraculous powers over and over and over again. He, he does it surgically for a purpose. And you want it, I understand, you think if you had it that you'd convince this world, but that's not the power that God is convincing the world in. It's, it's like, the, it's like the, uh, the fireworks or the, the, the searchlights at a fireworks store, you know? The searchlights really aren't much. It's to get you there so you'll buy the fireworks. This is what miracles are. It's to grab attention. But the power of God that's great is the, the call to repent because the people's needs ultimately are not to be raised from the dead just to die again. They're going to die again, right? Their need is not really to be raised from their paralysis. I mean, yes, that's a great gift. But, you know, I, I have hemophilia, and a lot of hemophiliacs died of hemophilia in my lifetime because of AIDS and other things that came through blood. And, it, and I tell you, don't heal my hemophilia. Give me eternal life, you know? And I know many of you who have illnesses feel the same way. I can live with this. What I can't live without is eternal life and the knowledge that God is for me, all right? So we have this, this example here of the power of God, this unitary authority. It's a single authority. And I want to speak to you a little bit about authority at this point, and then I want to challenge you in conclusion. What I want to speak to you about is the nature of authority as as it exists and as we see it. In the book of Revelation, we're told there's a series of events that take place. I, I, maybe I shouldn't say series. There's a collection of events because I'm not sure they're all uh, they're set in order. They, they, they take place consecutively. 
but they are related in order, but I think there are various views of the same thing. In a, and one of the, the, the great themes of Revelation is Satan's ability to provide what you would call a simulacrum, which is to be almost so similar as to look exactly the same as God's economy. So Satan does what God does. He wants to be worshipped as God is, demands to be worshipped. Satan wants glory. Satan uh, gives his power to a being that appears to die and was not and then lives again, all right, the beast. And that's exactly like Jesus, coming, dying with a wound, yet raised to life. And so you see in the book of, of Revelation, a lot of Satan's works are copies of what, counterfeit copies of what God has done. And, and in the end of Revelation, as, as it's describing the beast, the beast of Revelation who is given power by Satan, it says the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And so that beast is going to seem to come to life and then it's going to go to its destruction. And John in his vision says uh, there are well, there's seven mountains, seven heads. But he turns in, in a few more verses to speak about the beast again. And he says the beast which was and is not, is himself also an eighth. So of the seven, there's the eighth, which is the beast. And he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. They have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. And so we see that the beast has an authority. The ten horns are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority. When they receive authority, they have one purpose, and that's to give the authority that they receive, their power and authority to the beast. And so we have in Matthew chapter 10 where we're looking at Jesus gives power and authority to his disciples. Here, these kings give power and authority. All right? Where do the kings receive power and authority to in themselves so that they can give it to the beast. Well, it's obvious. All authority is, is from God. God allows these kings to have authority. He gives them, they receive it. They receive authority from God, who's sovereign over all. So the beasts receive authority, and they give that authority, they have one purpose, or I'm sorry, the kings receive authority. And they have one purpose, which is to give their power and authority to the beast. And so what you see is the beast, who is the personification of Satan, receiving power and authority, just as it's declared in Revelation, the great is he who sits on the throne to receive power and glory and authority and majesty, right? But here it's the beast, the satanic being that was and is not and is coming again. You understand? And God gives ten kings, and I, I don't want to go into who the, or what they are, but their authorities on earth, power and authority, so that they can, and their whole purpose is to transfer that power and that authority to the beast. Now, why do they need to give that power and authority to the beast, to Satan? Why do these ten kings do it? I'll tell you why. The answer is clear. They do it because authority with God is innate. He is authority. 
He is power. He is light. He is majesty. He is sovereignty. He is authority. Satan has no authority except that God allows him to have it. And so Satan is a great vacuum cleaner of authority. Satan exists and has power by convincing you to give him your authority. Do you understand this? Just as the ten kings. They exist. Their whole purpose is to give power and authority that they've received to the beast. You exist to give the power and authority that God has given you because you're created in his image to God through his son. But the challenge of your life is to give that authority to the son of God by faith rather than by your faith in Satan to transfer your authority to him. And every time you say, I believe that the world or Satan or the things of this life that are inducements to to be attached to this world, every time you give them power, what you're declaring is Satan is more powerful than God, and that's a lie. Satan has no power over you. The Word of God teaches this so clearly, it's incontrovertible. You can't deny it. Romans 8.31, if God be for us, who can be against us? And you're tempted to say, well, Satan can. (laughs) Do you think that that's not comprehended in this verse? You really think God is saying, if God be for us, who can be against us? Ah, except Satan. What this is saying is, of course, Satan is against us, but he doesn't have power against us. He doesn't have power. Listen, put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You put on faith, you put on hope, you put on the word of God. You have fortified yourself so that you can stand against Satan. None of his schemes get through, right? Uh, This is the Bible. Ephesians 4.27 says, don't give the devil an opportunity. How does the devil get opportunities? (laughs) Because you give them to him. Because we give Satan opportunity. That's exactly how he prospers. You give him an opportunity. You give him an opportunity. James 4, 7. What does it say? Resist the devil and he will clobber you until you're dead. (laughs) It doesn't say that. It says resist the devil and he will flee from you. 1 John 4, 4. I'll end with this. I could go on and on. I could spend another hour on verses that say the same thing. John, 1 John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so what Satan wants is for you to believe his lies. He wants you to pay attention to the searchlights that he's casting up in the air, you know, saying, come here, come here. There's nothing there at the end, but he has a lot of searchlights. And all these people that Jesus is sending his disciples after are entranced by, enamored of the searchlights of Satan. That's why they're harassed and helpless. They don't see the lie. They don't understand that the path they're on is the path of destruction. Jesus is sad. He loves people. He's not luring them to death like Satan He's calling them to life by saying repent. And so he sends his his disciples out with power. 
Now, I want to end by saying, why do we not have power? I don't think any of us is going to claim that we have the power that the disciples had. Would it be there if we could suddenly, would the world be changed if we could suddenly work these fabulous deeds of causing the dead to rise? No. Wouldn't change our world. Would it be there if we could preach the power of God, the presence of his kingdom, with the authority that these disciples had? Yes, eventually. The world wasn't changed overnight, but these disciples believed it, and eventually they changed the world. They did. The world fell to them. They conquered all things. They were more than conquerors. These are conquering men. This is their first battle with conquerors. Why is it that we don't see the world changed? Well, if you've noticed, I haven't said anything about how Jesus sent them out. How did Jesus send them out? He said, do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two coats or sandals or a staff. Go out with nothing but me. Go out with my power, your sole resource. Do not rely on the things of this world. You will not conquer the world by your knowledge of formal logic. You will not conquer the world by your good looks. I hear businessmen at times say, I've been given the gift of money so that I can help the kingdom of God. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. You don't conquer the world for Christ by your pursuit of money. You don't. I have dreams that I'm going to fly, you know. How many of you have dreams of flying? It's the most common recurring dream I've told, and I've talked about this before, but in that dream, you know, I'm up somewhere, there's the need to fly, and I'm there on a cliff or something, and uh, I think to myself, well, let's try it. <laughs> you know, as much as you can describe your thoughts in a dream, <laughs> let's try it. And... I dreamt it often enough that I know, you know, so I sort of take a little leap off. And suddenly, wham, wham, I'm flying in these dreams, right? I'm never not flying. I never, <laughs> the dream never ends with me splat. <laughs> I'm always flying. Those of you who have the same dream, maybe that's the way it begins with you. But you know that it begins with sort of a, a jump rather than a flinch. A jump, not a flinch. You don't flinch. And draw back, you jump. And you fly. Those who flinch and draw back never fly. Right? It's true. Those who flinch don't take down Goliath with five smooth stones. Right? Those who flinch don't see their forces whittled from the tens of thousands down to 300 and go with the 300 against the Midianites. Like Gideon. Those who flinch don't leave Haran and Ur 
to go to a distant land like Abraham. Those who flinch don't stand in their upper room, throw open the windows and pray to God after having been told that he who did that would die. Think how many women in the Bible don't flinch. Those who flinch don't say to their mother-in-law, your people shall be my people, your God, my God, I'm going back with you to Bethlehem. Those who flinch don't say when the Holy Spirit comes and says you're going to be with child, don't say, may it be to the Lord's servant as you have said. They say, whoa, I've got plans. Those who flinch are not like Esther, who challenged by her cousin Mordecai to go before the king who was decreeing the death of the Jews, finally said, all right, I will go in, pray for me, but if I die, I die. But we flinch. And we say, I need a little more money. I need to be a little better educated. I need a couple coats, don't I? Extra sandals, a staff, a means of defense. I need these things. God's kingdom prospers by people having these things. And Jesus says, no, no. As you rid yourself of everything but the message of God and his power, then you will see power. Church doesn't advance by Instagram or Facebook. Doesn't advance by television programs. Doesn't advance by any of the things that we've been caught up into in America. It advances as men and women say, I need God and I will leave my money behind. I will leave my money behind. Until the church in America says that money doesn't advance the kingdom of God, we won't have a message for the Antifa and the Portland protesters and the, the protesters at the BLM rallies. We'll have no message at all. But as we give these things up and are filled with the power of God, we will see this nation changed. We will see Toledo changed. We will see our children changed. May it be so with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and these disciples and the glory of their lives and what they accomplished. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we will be like them, that we will give up, that we will not treasure our looks, our bank accounts, our houses, Father. That everything that we have will be given to you and available for you, everything, Father. And may you fill us with power, in Jesus' name, amen.